Matthew 6 and starting with verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what you what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here and um, just happy to be with you this morning. Um, This weather has been incredible. And so I just want to say thank the Lord for this weather. Uh, Spring has been so kind to us. Uh, I'm usually complaining right now because I'm a sweater. I don't know if you're a sweater. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's more information than you bargained for at the beginning of a sermon. I apologize for that. Um, I'm, I'm just thrilled. We've got the Lord's Prayer in front of us, and we're going to get right into it um, with the very first line of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. And as I've been studying for this prayer this week uh, and, and what I might say, uh, I've just been thinking about fatherhood a lot. And during the passing of the peace, I have four children, by the way, during the passing of the peace, this was not staged. This is totally off the cuff. I received a, a letter from my oldest daughter that says, To Daddy, love Scar. Dear Dad, I love it when you teach us a church lesson. And then there's a, a person with a heart for a head and a smiley face and one on the back. How awesome is that? Uh, so that's perfect, uh, especially right before a sermon on the fatherhood of God in a week before Father's Day. So something's going right, uh, right there. Um, but I wanted to, as I've, as I've been thinking about fatherhood and studying about fatherhood, it's become just apparent to me that everyone is desperate uh, for the approval of a father. No matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, there's something deep inside each and every human being that longs for the approval, the affection, and the attention of a father. Some people have said that the search for a father is really the baseline narrative of what it means to be human. Um, From the blessing of the father, kind of like what we just sung about in the Old Testament, it's a big deal, to Michael Jordan quitting basketball at the height of his fame so that he could go play minor league baseball, so that he could please his father, make him proud, to every Wes Anderson film that's ever been made is about a child who's trying to find Uh, the approval and the acceptance of his father. And that's why those things resonate with us. There's something inside each and every one of us that wants to be loved, wants to be known, wants to be comforted and seen by our father. A recent study in Psychology Today underscores this need for a father's approval. Dr. Peggy Drexler, excuse me, she says this, In my research into the lives of some 75 high-achieving, clearly independent women, 
I knew that I would find a powerful connection between them and the first men in their lives. What surprised me, though, was how deep and surprisingly traditional the bond is, how powerful it remains throughout their lives, and how resilient it can be. Even when a father has caused them grievous harm, no matter how successful their careers, how happy their marriages, or how fulfilling their lives, women told me that their happiness passed through a filter of their father's reaction. Many told me that they tried to remove the filter and, much to their surprise, failed. We know that fathers play a key role in the development and choices of their daughters, but even for women whose fathers had been neglectful or abusive, I found a hunger for approval. They wanted a warm relationship with men who did not deserve any relationship at all. That's that phrase, a hunger for approval that stood out to me. And it's not just true of daughters, it's true of sons as well. According to American psychiatrist Dr. Frank Pittman says this, Life for most boys and for many grown men is a frustrating search for the lost father who has not yet offered them protection, provision, nurturing, modeling, or especially anointment. And what he means by anointment is sort of the blessing that a father should give his son, the approval. We're all desperate for it. We're all desperate for approval, which is why it should come as no surprise to us that the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was what? How to pray. The disciples didn't ask him to teach them how to preach, how to heal, how to raise the dead, how to walk on water. They asked him how to pray. Luke chapter 11, one disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And they're essentially saying there's something different about Jesus. There's something different about the way he views God and his relationship with God, and we want to be like that. We want to know God like Jesus knows God. That's why we're studying the Lord's prayers, because we want to know God, and we want to live like Jesus lived. The way Jesus related to God resonates deeply with his disciples because it flipped the script about how they were to think about God. And so ask yourself the question, what comes to my mind when I think about God? What comes into your mind? What images? What stories? Some say a king who needs loyalty. Some say a coach who, you know, just wants your performance. He's not going to be satisfied until you perform. Some just see him as distant or angry. Some guy sitting on the clouds. Your view of God informs everything about who you are and how you live. So having a right view of God is a big deal. Matthew chapter 6 that Phoebe read for us. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and he starts by teaching them that there's essentially two ways to pray. And the two ways to pray are, are really about something else. They're really about how there's only two ways to view God. There's a pagan way to pray, and there's a Christian way to pray. There's a way full of meaningless words, and there's a way of meaningful communion with God. So look at verse 7 and 8. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans, He's saying, you shouldn't act like they act, because you shouldn't think like they think. You don't have to earn the approval of God. You don't have to perform for him with many words and shouting so that you can be seen. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not ignorant. 
so you don't have to instruct him, and he's not hesitant, so you don't have to persuade him. He's a father, Jesus says, who loves his children, and he knows what they need before he, they even ask. And so when people start seeing God as their heavenly father, they begin to walk in acceptance and not for acceptance. You hear that? When, when you begin to understand God as your heavenly father, you walk in acceptance and not for acceptance. Pagans pray to get God's blessing. Christians already have it, so they pray. That's the difference. Jesus starts his public ministry in Matthew chapter 3. Remember, when he's baptized, a voice comes down from heaven, God the Father, and he says what? This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Pleased at what? What had Jesus done at that point? We don't know hardly anything about what Jesus had done up until that point. He hadn't performed any miracles. He hadn't saved anybody. He hadn't baptized anybody. He hadn't done anything. And here we see God saying, my son has my acceptance and my blessing simply because he's my child, not because of what he's done, but because he's mine. And Jesus, from that point on, lives every moment of his life with the acceptance of the Father, not for it. Jesus isn't living the perfect life to get the acceptance of his Father. He already has it. And that's why he teaches us, when you pray, start with the words, our Father. Because you pray to a different God than the pagans do. Those two little words set the course of everything in your life. Our Father. If you don't have an understanding of God as your father and a clear picture in your mind of what it means to be adopted by God and what it costs God to bring you into his family, Jesus says, you're going to end up praying like a pagan because that's the only other way. And if you're anything like me, for the majority of my life, you've struggled with this battle to put God as father before you and not the pagan way. Um, I've always found myself thinking that God's on some sort of cosmic swivel chair and he's, you know, he's waiting for me to perform for him, to keep him happy. And as soon as I don't, he turns his back on me and he's not approving of me. And I have to do something to curry his favor, to turn him around again. Um, so I'm always balancing between either performing for God and when I fail, which is often, I'm hoping other people don't see it. And, and, and so I pretend I either perform or I pretend before God, and that's exhausting. And Jesus says, our Father in heaven isn't like that. That's the pagan way. Jesus points us to a perfect God who's always available. He's never absent. He's never ambivalent. He's always affectionate. He's ready to shower you with approval. Praying our Father reminds us that God is personal. He's personal. He's not, a, he's not up there somewhere where he's, he's hoping that, you know, or you're hoping that your prayers are loud enough that he hears. He's personal. He's intimate. He's close. Psalm chapter 139, go read it today, says that God knows everything about you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb. There's no secrets with God. I don't know how, what you think about that. If someone, if, the, if you have someone, a coworker, a friend, a boss, family member, who knows everything about you, 
There's no secrets. They know what you're thinking. They know what you want to say. They know how you voted. That's kind of scary if they know everything about you. God knows everything about you, but it's not scary because he's a father who loves you. He's personal, but he's also loving. He's not an ogre in the sky. John 3, 16, what's it say? For God so loved the world. He so loves the world. Brings tremendous comfort to Christians that God knows me and he loves me. I can be vulnerable with him. I can be vulnerable. But he's not just loving And he's not just personal, he's also powerful. Because Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. The in heaven isn't so much God's address, like his physical address. Uh, it's, It's more his authority and his power. God is everywhere. But he's our Father in heaven, which means he's got all authority, all power. He's the perfect combination of love and power, which means the comfort that you need, he has the love to give. And the confidence that you lack, his power can provide. So what his love promises, his power can deliver on. That's a good thing, amen? That's the God that we serve. And, and that's what Jesus says. This is how you should pray. This is how you should begin. Anybody remember what it was like to be a little kid on the first day of school? Maybe a new school that you've never been to? Or maybe you're making a leap from preschool to kindergarten or Elementary school to middle school or middle school to high school or high school to college. College to getting married. There's always that, that threshold where you're, you're feeling a lack and you're kind of shy and you're holding back. And, you know, you just, you, you long to be comforted because you need that confidence. Every kid longs to have a father grab their hand and walk with them. They long for the comfort and confidence of a loving and powerful father. Everything you've ever wanted in a father. Psychology today spelled it out for us. Everything we've ever wanted comes to us from our Father in heaven. But there's only one way to pray like Jesus. There's only one way. And that's, that's to go from being loved by God, God loves the world, to being in the family of God. The Bible teaches that all are loved but not all are in the family. And so in order to pray like Jesus, God's one and only son, you have to become a part of God's family. And you ask, how does that happen? The Bible. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this. It says, as many who received Jesus and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All the blessings that come through Jesus and being a part of God's family come as a result of that relationship. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means I've been adopted by God. By faith in Jesus, I've been given, I've been given rights to the family of God. And when you get that, when you get you know, what it cost God to bring you into his family, I think that's actually the engine, the heartbeat that changes your prayer life. It takes it from something mechanical and impersonal to familial and present. The links that Jesus went to leave heaven, to come to earth, to die on a cross so that you and I can be adopted into God's family. 
Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was forsaken by his Father so that you and I would never have to be forsaken so that we could be invited in. And so when we pray our Father, it changes us. It gets us in that right mindset to go, this is the living God. And it does it in three ways, three quick ways. Here we go. When God is your Father, you get a brand new identity. When God becomes your Father, you become a brand new person. We all know that adoption isn't about a change in behavior. Anybody from adopted family or been adopted or has adopted siblings? You know of people who've adopted. Adoption doesn't change your behavior. You can parent that child in a godly way with prayer, and over time you might see a behavioral change. But it's not that at first. Adoption is not about behavior. Adoption is about a legal status change. What does that mean? It means the father legally adopts a child, and he says, now you're mine. You went from not being mine to being mine. And if you misbehave, I don't send you away. That's not what this is about. You're part of my family, and I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm committed to you. That's adoption. When Jesus has been received into your life, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, the old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. And I can tell you that I'm thankful that I have that new identity in Christ, and I hope you have that as well. When Jesus has been received in your life, God doesn't look at you anymore and see shame and failure and regrets and addiction and struggle. He looks down and he sees a perfect 10 because of the work of Christ. In Christ, you're a son or you're a daughter of our Father in heaven. Amen? Amen. Many of us know adoption firsthand and it, it's costly. It's expensive. It takes time. There's lots of legalities involved. But when you work through all that and you finally get to the day when the judge seals the deal and the gavel falls, what happens? You go from having an old name to, be, to being given a new name and part of a new family. And that's exactly what the Bible says you and I get in this beautiful act of adoption by faith. And I think if we catch that, we'll pray as Jesus prayed. Secondly, when God is your father, you get unending access. This isn't phone a friend access to God. This isn't call collect. Anybody remember call and collect or get a collect call? Yeah. So anyway, it's not that. It's 24-7 unending access to the throne of heaven. The book of Hebrews tells us that we can bring our request before the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Not because of what we've done, because of what Jesus has done for us. One pastor puts it this way. He says, the only person that can wake up a king in their bed at 3 a.m. is their child. That's the only one. No servant can kick in the door. But at 3 a.m. in the middle of your sleep, you can experience a child busting into, the, into your room. Because why? Because they're your child. If one of you did that to me, at 3 a.m., it would get funky real fast. But if a child does that, it's different. I'm not saying it doesn't get funky if they keep doing it. But it's, there's a difference because of the relationship. Parents know that a child doesn't care about personal space. They don't care about privacy. There's nothing sacred. At any given moment, they can bust in and scream, Daddy! And you're just like, what time is it, buddy? It's 2.47 a.m. 
awesome. What do you need? You know how we've been staying up late and watching movies, and I had this question about rodents of unusual size, and you're just going, are you serious? Like, it's 2.47 a.m. in the morning. But kids can do that. They can walk in at any time because they have unending access to their father. The same is true for us as children of God. You can interrupt your father at any time, and you don't have to beg for his attention. He's already willing and ready to give it to you. You've got unending access. Romans 8.28 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You can take your problems, your issues to God, and you can say, I need help. And what you have is the heart of the king of the universe who's ready and willing to do something about it. So you've been given a new identity, Jesus tells us when we pray our Father. We've also been given unending access. Finally, we can look forward to an immeasurable inheritance. The Bible says that when God legally adopts you as his child, you don't just get a new name and unending access. You get an inheritance that you cannot fathom. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that this inheritance can never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. It's being kept in heaven for you until the time that God appoints. Jesus once told a parable about two lost sons. Neither of them understood what they had until they didn't have it anymore. There's the obvious sinner in the parable that you may know as the prodigal son who, who demanded his inheritance. He's the younger son, so he didn't, he didn't get that fair share. He, he wanted his share right now, and he wasted it all, and he found himself sleeping with pigs and eating the food that they had in a far country. But it wasn't his jacked up life that woke him up. It was his remembering the goodness of his father. It was his memory of the love that the father showed his own servants that got this son's heart set right and got him put back on the track back to home. This parable is in Luke chapter 15 and it says this, while this son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son here is still covered in pig filth, but his father wraps his arm around him. He kisses him without flinching. The son says, I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. He's got that pagan mindset. The father replied by putting a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders and shoes on his feet. And then he throws him a party and a celebration that he's home. And Jesus says, there was also an older brother who never left, who always stayed. He always did what his father asked him to do. But he found himself in this moment bitter and self-righteous and unable to enter into the joy of his father and the celebration that was taking place because he thought he deserved the acceptance and the affirmation and the approval of his father more than his younger brother. And just when you'd expect the father to lay into this guy, because he's totally selfish, it's so obvious, you'd expect the father to pull out the paddle and give it to him for having such a sinful attitude. The father does something different. He paints this beautiful picture of grace. The father says this in Luke, Luke chapter 15 to the older son. You are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. That's the immeasurable inheritance 
that's at our fingertips when we pray, our Father in heaven. Everything our Father in heaven has is ours in Christ. We don't need to be anxious. We can pray with confidence, knowing that our Father has our ear. We don't have to perform because He accepts us in Christ. We don't have to hedge our bets. We can live, uh, we can lay our lives down on the line and live with that abandon because we know we have an inheritance that awaits us. When our Father is in heaven, we get a brand new identity. We get unending access to the throne of grace, and we have an immeasurable inheritance that awaits us in heaven. I want to read a passage of Scripture here as we close. Just straight from Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he writes about this new identity and this unending access and this inheritance that awaits us. Listen to these words, Galatians chapter 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That's the gospel. That is the good news of Christianity. Verse 4 always amazes me. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son. Here we are in a culture of fatherlessness and everyone is desperate for the approval of a father. We spend our lives looking for that acceptance, but in the gospel, we have a father who comes looking for us, who comes running after his own lost children. In the fullness of time, God the Father came for you. He sent his son to die for you, to redeem you from the curse of the law that you had yourself under because of your own doing. Why? So that you might receive adoption as his children. You can enjoy a new identity as a child of God. You can enjoy unending access. You can look forward to an immeasurable inheritance when you pray as Jesus prayed. Our Father in heaven if we had that mindset when we sit down to pray, we stopped for a moment and thought about that, how would that change your prayer life? Might that change your entire life? Let me pray for us.